Father, before we were even conscious of it waking up this morning, you fill our lungs with breath. And we awoke to a world in which mercies are made new every single day because of you and who you are and what you do. You hold things together we've never even acknowledged. You are greater than we've ever imagined. Your love is deeper than we could ever fathom. And we stumble along, sinners in need of grace, living in the mystery of you, trying to find our way. As we do that again this morning, in reflection and thought of your world and how you work, how you made it to be, and how you're taking it back. May we see you, and may we hear you, in Jesus' name, amen. Justin Lee, in his book, Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians debate, starts off with a story. He tells the story of Christian evangelical author Jonathan Merritt, who wrote an opinion piece for USA Today, the significant line in the middle of it all, kind of capturing what he was talking about, is up here. He says, now is the time for those who bear the name of Jesus Christ to stop merely talking about love and start showing love to our gay and lesbian neighbors. It must be concrete and tangible. It must be beyond rhetoric. Two days later, as the responses and opinions flood in from all of those who've responded to his article, the title two days later in USA Today reads, Behind a Message of Love, the Anti-Gay Agenda. Some took Jonathan Merritt to task because he was way too soft on sin. Others on the other side took Jonathan Merritt to task for the exact opposite. Again, we find ourselves in this place of this huge debate in Christian circles surrounding the idea and topic of homosexuality. When we asked you, students, faculty, alumni, what is it, the big questions of life that aren't being answered for you either in your classroom or you're not hearing being asked or we're not talking about enough, this one was near the top of everybody's list. The problem is, is every time this conversation comes up, it becomes so polarizing for us within the Christian community. It seems to be that if you'll just declare some sort of theological position on this issue, then we know where you fit on everything else. I recently heard Philip Yancey talk about having an invitation to speak at a national gathering of a denomination actually be rescinded simply because he refused to actually out loud declare where he stood. That was enough to take the invitation back. I will be honest with all of you, this is my fear this morning as well, that either way, regardless of what I say, some of you will rule me out. Some of you will complain because I'm not going to be hard enough on sin. And others, well, you'll say the opposite. Maybe if I do really well, no one will like me. You know, the other option in Christianity in America today is you simply just pick your camp and then you stay there. You never venture out and you never actually do anything daring in Jesus' name either. We pick our preachers like we pick our evening news channels. 
And we listen to our own opinions being fed back to us in the gospel that we've created in our own image. Our camps become wider and wider apart, the chasm between us deeper and deeper. People no longer have simply found a hill to die on, they're actually building the hill first. The now famous study done in 2007 by the Barna Group of your generation, those ages 16 to 29 years old in America today, you've probably heard this one before. You were asked all the words to describe Christianity in America, given a whole list of adjectives, both good and bad. But the most popular of any, anti-homosexual. 91% of non-Christians aged 16 to 29, according to David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, which led to the premise of their book, Unchristian, 91% of non-Christians aged 16 to 29 in America chose the number one word to describe Christians as anti-homosexual. Here's the most shocking part, actually, about this survey is that 80% of churchgoers chose the same word as their number one pick. To self-describe us, anti-homosexual. And still know we are Christians by our anti-homosexuality, by our anti-homosexuality. That's not how the song goes. So how did we start singing this tune? How did we get here? How come in the last 50 years in evangelical, reformed, Christian America, our brand has become known as anti-abortion and anti-gay? How did we get here? How does that become the number one descriptor of us? What's interesting to me is when I look back and study first century culture and the world in which Jesus lived, Child abandonment was rampant. Babies left to die, such a disregard for human life in general. Abandoned on garbage piles and in sides of the road. And interestingly enough, in the midst of all of that, which Jesus so obviously would have been against, on no political platform did he ever simply base or have his ministry be recognized entirely by. He would never allow people to box him in so neatly and so clearly. Most historians tell us that homosexuality in the first century Greco-Roman world was much more prevalent than it even is today in America. And yet here again, too, Jesus does not define his ministry by this, or if he said anything about it, his followers did not deem it appropriate to write it down in the Gospels. It didn't make the list. Have we made homosexuality in Christianity America today bigger than the Bible has? Have we? I did a word study this week. If you were to create a lectionary based on the prevalence of themes in the Bible and then preach them all the way through. So if you were to take the things that are talked about in the Bible the most and then build your sermon series around that, before I would be preaching this week on homosexuality, I would have completed a 92-week sermon series on money. What is the greatest sin facing the church in America today? I would argue it probably isn't homosexuality. Money, probably, wealth, greed. You know that 1 Corinthians 6 passage that has that list, right, that we always go to? And it's got the list, the forbidding homosexual practice. 
in this long list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and then it's got those other things all in the list. I actually listened and had a conversation with someone who was gay recently who said, you know what's the strangest thing about that list? I actually struggle more with the other things in it than I do with the homosexuality, and yet that seems to be the one that everybody brands me by. Greed, talking smack about other people, idolatry. These are the ones that really get me. A 92 to 1 ratio. What about this room? If it was somehow possible to take all the heterosexual thoughts, sins, and histories of everybody in this room, and myself included, and we could pile them up on this stage. And then on this side of the stage, we could pile up all the homosexual sins in this room and put them on this side of the stage. I'm pretty sure that this pile would be dwarfed in light of that one. So why are we still, why is this so big? Several years ago, I was asked to speak at Dort before I even worked here on this topic, and this room was packed full of people. Two weeks later, I was asked to speak at an event at Dort College for couples on saving themselves sexually for marriage, abstinence and heterosexual relationships. Twelve people showed up. Perhaps this is a big deal for us, some say, because it's low-hanging fruit, it's easy pickings. It's easiest to stand on the soapbox for the sins that are not ours. It's the easiest for us, especially the ones that we find strange because they're just not our issue. Have we made this a bigger deal than even the Bible? Sometime back, in order to help understand the discussion, somebody at Calvin College came, with, came up with a six-perspective sheet that we've often used on this campus as well. This is what it looks like. Now this is describing the different perspectives within the family of God and people who follow Christ in America would put themselves somewhere on this sheet. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this before, but you can see as it moves from perspective one, a perspective that says even orientation itself is wrong, it is condemned. Same-sex attraction and behaviors are abnormal, they're unnatural. People who experience this need to repent of their orientation and their behavior. On the far other side, on perspective six, a wider acceptance, many sexual variants are valid. Same-sex attraction orientation is a created variant as normal as heterosexuality. That's perspective six. And you can see the sort of the differences as we move back towards the center of the chart. The reason why I find this chart helpful, number one, is because it helps us understand our Christian brothers and sisters a little bit better. If you've ever fully read through, and I'm sure you all have, Dort College's student handbook. It's all right, I'm not sure the faculty have fully read theirs either. But if you have, I think everybody would pretty much say Dort College sits somewhere right at perspective three, that that would describe the position and the policies and the handbooks and the teaching overall at Dort College. Realizing full well that within this community there are people a little more on one side of the spectrum in their thinking, there are people a little more on the other side of the spectrum in their thinking. The reality is the family of God is bigger than we want it to be. And yet time and again we continue to break fellowship over issues like this. Now, If Dort picks number three, and if this is the perspective in which we stand, I would argue that what we have done is chosen the hardest place of all to land. 
Because if you're going to acknowledge that yes, you can be born with same-sex attraction through no fault of your own, okay? You're not, you're not being blamed for this. You're not culpable in this. Eliminating the whole discussion of whether or not people are born with same-sex attraction or that's developed over time because of experiences in life, all of it off the table, no fault of anybody's own. That, we're all going to say that in Perspective 3. But if you're going to say that and then say, but as we read the Bible, what we, what we see is that God's ideal for sexuality in the way that he created us does not include an open homosexual lifestyle. If you're going to say that, which Perspective 3 does, then you better be the most loving, enfolding, caring, and compassionate community. I remember talking to somebody one time, coming forward and saying, I I am same-sex attracted. This is me. And this is the hardest thing about it. I can't tell everybody. And yet I need to tell everybody. Because if you're going to ask me to live there, and you're going to tell me that I don't get to go to Little League games with my kids growing up, and I don't get to walk with a partner hand in hand through the park, and I don't get to wake up on Saturday mornings and make cinnamon rolls with them, and I don't get to experience all the things that you get to experience that you just get to take for granted for what the rest of your life will look like, and you're asking me to shelve all of those desires because this is where we stand and this is what we believe the Bible asks us, then I need you to be the best community the world has ever seen because I will never make it without that. Never. We have chosen the hardest place on all of this to stand. And if we can't come forward and say this is me, this is where I am at, we will never, ever, ever make it. We will never be able to summarize the totality of somebody's being as this is your sexual orientation. The greatest common denominator that I have with you, whether you are gay or whether you are straight, is that you and I stand in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is what we have in common. That is the greatest common denominator between everybody in this room and everybody in this community. Some sins are easy to put people into stereotypes with, but that is not where they belong. And you and I, who know the gospel well enough, know that stereotypes do not belong so easily fitted into the kingdom of God. If we're going to go with this perspective, there are other things within the body of Christ that we need to be able to do differently. Number one, we need to be people of a ridiculous understanding of grace. Now that word gets thrown around so much it loses its potency and its power, but let me get it back a little bit. Grace is the most non-discriminative force the world has ever seen. Grace does not have biases. Grace points always to God's movement and not our own. Grace says, I didn't save myself, Jesus did. And grace says, I cannot transform myself, Jesus can. Grace says that Jesus turns the pages of history and that he is in control. Grace says that God is the subject of the verbs in my life and in everyone else's. Grace says that this is the greatest common denominator between us. Grace says I don't have to try to control everything in my environment because God already does. And he saved me and he's redeeming all of this. Grace is that kind of acknowledgement. And we need to be gracious to one another in these conversations. We need to be humble Truly humble. 
One of the things I try to imagine before preaching on this topic today is if this was recorded and my grandchildren 50 years from now listened to this and said, he is wrong. I'm a follower of Jesus. We know a lot better now. He is wrong. Are my words still seasoned with grace? Are the things that I say full of humility? Do we entertain the possibility that wherever it is that we stand, we don't yet fully stand under the authority of Scripture? And I say this to everybody on every end of the spectrum, because this is what happens in these discussions on homosexuality, no matter what your position is. I've heard it too many times. We come with our idea, and then we put Scripture beneath it, and we read our ideas back in, and we cherry-pick the passage that we like, and we skip out the ones that we don't, and we end up with a gospel made in our own image, and we celebrate our opinions in the echo chamber of those who sound and look and feel just like we do. That is not how community is shaped. That is not the body of Christ. That's not how we are formed. That's not how we get sanctified. We have to acknowledge there are people within our own community in varying positions and ideas and placements on this spectrum. Humility has the ability to say, on this and on so many other things, semper reformata, one of the great aspects of the reformational tradition, that we are not reformed, duh, done. We are reforming and always reforming because beautiful, 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 God has yet to reveal the fullness of all of his truth to us. We do not yet understand everything about this book. We do not yet understand everything about Christ. We do not yet understand everything about the kingdom because it's still coming. Glory be to God. He's not done yet. And inspiration doesn't mean that these things were written at one point in time, but God has finished speaking. God is still speaking louder than ever, reclaiming more and more and more of creation and reclaiming all of our sexuality as well. Humility has the ability to say, God is changing me. The most powerful voices in the history of Christianity that have preached grace better than any other are the ones that knew how to soak it up better than any other, the ones that knew that they needed it the most. Why is Paul such a great preacher on grace? Because he was chief among all sinners, he says. Realizing that it's in his weakness and in the strength of God that his identity can be found. That any hope can be found. And if we're going to live in perspective three as a community, or even if you're in four, two, whatever, regardless, here's another principle. We have to be amazing listeners. Jesus taught us this. Humility means listening well to others, not talking about them, talking with them. What I'm so fascinated by in Jesus' teaching of us about how to listen well, is that here is the man who held within him the secrets and all the mysteries of the universe. He was there when the ocean depths were carved. He was there when the farthest stars were put meticulously in place. He's upholding and understands every law that holds all of creation together. He walks on the water while holding it up. He holds the molecules of the cross together as it hangs him. He has all of this all together, and yet when he sits in conversation with people, he actually listens to them, and he zeroes all the way in, and they become the most important person in the world in that moment. And he has surrendered so much listening to them, hearing their pain and their story and why it is they feel marginalized and hurt and what it is they stand in need of reconciliation for. And yet all the while, all the mysteries of the universe are contained within him. That says something incredibly profound about the power of listening and how we truly do this well. 
to listen to somebody else's story, the old cliche, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, could not hold more truth than in the middle of this conversation. John chapter 8, starting at verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In all the stories and interactions that Jesus has with, any, with everybody throughout the Gospels, with the stories that he tells, and typically Jesus answers all the questions with stories, I really do believe that if Jesus was preaching this message today and we came to him with a question, he probably would have answered with a story. But in all of these passages and all of the lessons he teaches and all of the healings that he enacts, he meets people with care and compassion first. There's an unflinching understanding within Jesus that grace will always earn its audience. And with grace and compassion, he enters in. And you see in this moment with his words and his wisdom and maybe it even would have been with his body covering this woman who everybody else is pointing fingers at and wants to hurt. He stands in the gap. Those who will follow Jesus must stand in the fray. You have to get ministry mess on you. It's why Jesus describes denying yourself as the first process of becoming a disciple because self-protection is not part of being a follower of Jesus. Self-denial, self-abandonment, absolutely. It's the same thing Jesus is getting at in the story of the Good Samaritan. Kindness without question. The Good Samaritan is held up as the model of someone answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You look like this. You cross boundaries. You risk reputation. You risk agenda. You risk self-harm in order to be in this place. And in none of these instances does Jesus ever approach somebody before a healing and say, I need to know your thoughts first on women in office and your preferential worship style and your sexual orientation. Never, ever, ever does Jesus do this. And neither must we. We are called to come into the fray, stand in ministry mess and get whatever crap comes on us that has to be there because that is what followers of Jesus do. They self-deny. The reason why the, the good Samaritan is the good Samaritan it's because he's as interested in this person as he's in himself, arguably more so. 
The question that is driving his motives and his actions in the entire story isn't, what will happen to me if I stop? The question is, what will happen to him if I don't stop? And that is the question we have to ask ourselves time and time and time again. It doesn't matter just what your theological position is. What if Rick Watts is right? What if Jesus is more interested in you being good than you being right? What if the loudest message that will ever change and transform the world is our ability to be light in the darkness, the way that we extend love and show compassion and care to people? I don't think the world gets transformed with a bunch of Christians standing on the outside yelling and throwing truth bombs into a circle. Does that work? Anybody in your life ever changed you by doing that? Jesus stands in the middle. He does not simply exercise pity. Pity stands on the outside and looks in. Pity is condescending. Pity is self-protectionary. Pity just looks and feels sorry for others without a willingness to risk. Compassion literally means to suffer with. Jesus showed us in every way, shape, and form in his life, he suffered with and for people. He risked his reputation. He would not cozy up to the political or the religious elite. He did not care for a position of power or title. He did not need wealth to accomplish the kingdom of God coming in. Jesus risked so much in the way that he reached out to everybody else in the margins of society. And you and I must do the same if we will claim him. Care and compassion. Grace will earn its audience. Jesus covers this woman and only then can he speak. Heard a summary statement on Monday. Had lunch with a great friend and a close mentor of mine and he said it like this. Truth without the context of relationship is simply harsh. Truth inside relationship is love. If we haven't established relationship, we have abdicated, we have relinquished the right to speak. You ask me why have we gotten here today in the church in America? It is because we, you and I, abdicated our role to be care and compassion before all others. We did not look like Christ. And we lost the right to speak. And we marginalize some of those who have been hurting the worst. Because we're too afraid to get a little ministry mess on us. We want to declare, make sure everybody knows, well, before I can help you, you need to know this about my convictions. No. You just go in. Care and compassion. Does Jesus follow that up in the context in relationship with people of healing and restoration, whatever it is that they have needed reconciliation with people in community? Absolutely. Jesus does this for everyone. But after everybody knows unflinching that this is their place, that they will stand here. I listened to a pastor of a church recently who said, we are going to come forward and we are actually going to let everybody in our community know that we actually take a very firm position on what we believe the Bible says on homosexuality. I said, well, how are you going to do that within your community? 
He said, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to tell everybody this is our firm place. But we're going to march to the front of the gay pride parade in our town. And if there is a single person claiming the name of Christ with some sort of hate speech or sign or anything else, we will stand in the gap and in the fray. We will stand in that place. And people will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we love without reservation or without self-protection in mind. We love with a reckless self-abandonment. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And in the context and the establishment of relationship, this is when Jesus has earned the right to speak and people want to hear. In a righteous pursuit of truth, too often throughout the pages of history, the Christian church has abdicated our care and compassion. We steamroll people in our righteous quest for truth, and we forget about everything we've left in our wake. And then we celebrate our victories listening to one another as we applaud to ourselves. What has this accomplished? If you lose the very audience you've been called to save, what have you done? What have we done? Here's the funny thing about Jesus. If you flip two pages back in your Bible to chapter 6, Jesus offers a really hard teaching. And here too he chases people away. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. You have no life in you. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one would, can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love this peculiar third way that Jesus always sets up for us. We have this natural tendency toward binaries in Christian conversation. And look at what Jesus does instead. We should be so full of grace, care, and compassion that people think we are so ridiculously soft on sin it's not even funny. And we should be so relentless in our pursuit of truth and faithfulness that we have fully confounded everyone around. Because the life and discipleship in Jesus Christ is the tension to live in the middle of exactly that. You don't get to pick truth or grace. They are two sides of the same coin that is the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And he seems to be fine chasing people away with hard teaching and he seems to be fine chasing people away when they want to throw stones. And somehow in the middle of this, we have to figure out how to be community and be faithful. And wherever it is, our opinions will not get us there. Surrender to whatever it is that the Spirit of God leads us to and the truth of what's been revealed to us is the only thing that we have. In grace, and in humility, and through listening well. We will get there. Because the one who's turning these pages is more brilliant and more loving and understanding than any of us. As we close in this time, I want to read together a prayer that actually isn't mine. In 1999, the Christian Reformed Church put together a study committee for pastoral care 
towards homosexual members. And I'll read that prayer as we close. Lord, our gracious God, we have sinned against you. We have not done the things we ought to have done. We have not kept the promises we made. Instead of trying to become a place where persons who love you and are homosexual could find a gracious dwelling, we confess that we have continued to build walls. We have avoided them. We have been cruel. We have called names and used insulting language. We, we have wished that they would just go away. Truly, Lord, there is little health in us. We have wronged these children of yours, and we have wronged these brothers and sisters of ours, and we repent of our sins. We are sorry for what we have done and for what we have left undone. Lord, forgive us our sins through the blood of Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you for keeping your promises, and we want to be like you. We want to keep our promises. Help us, Father, to do so. Help us to love our gay and lesbian sisters and brothers. Help us to love with words and deeds. Strengthen our resolve to listen to their stories, to share their pain, to learn from others, to talk with them, not at them, to walk together on life's journey. Lord, we have questions. We do not know everything. Give us the grace not to act otherwise. And give us the humility to attend to what we do know. We do know that life is more complicated than we wish. We do know that we need your forgiveness for the past and your grace for the future. As we continually struggle to be the church, faithful to your word, faithful to each other, in Christ. Amen. Thanks.